dads tend to not have the same social network that mom tends to have. And more importantly, they're not as likely to tap into that social network for help. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey friends, I'm so glad you're here. This is the 11th episode of Wild Peace for Parents, and I'm thrilled to say that we've gotten some really supportive, awesome feedback from listeners. If you're loving it, would you please leave a review? A quick tap on those five stars and a positive comment will let us know we're on the right track and make it easier for others to find us. Since this show is for you, I'd love to know what you care about. One more announcement. This show is a weekly production, but we're going to follow in Game of Thrones footsteps and call it the end of season one after episode 12. I know this is more niche than that, but you get it, right? This is so I can take the time to put together some really meaningful episodes for season two, which will start up in early fall. I'm not dropping in any fillers here, even though there's some pressure to do that. And that's because I'm all about finding that space to breathe, and I hope you are too. If you have a great guest suggestion, send them my way through www.wildpeace.org. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to other Wild Peace episodes, summer is your chance. Okay, on to today's show. My guest today is Luis Mendoza. It's a bit past Father's Day, but we're still in the spirit around here. Luis is the head of the Washington State Fathers Network, which works to connect men with each other and with resources and information by training them to tell their story and advocate for change and by working to promote inclusion. Today, Lewis represents a broad composite of fathers. We talk about what dads experience when their kids are on a different path and how that's a bit different in general from what moms experience. We also talk about a workshop Lewis offers called Telling Your Story with a Purpose, where he coaches dads to develop a brief elevator pitch to affect change for their families and for others. This is a great technique fathers or really anyone can practice to build their advocacy skills. So without further ado, I'm honored to bring you Luis Mendoza. Hi, Luis. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Kendra. It's nice to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm really excited today that we get to talk about the father's perspective. So to get started, maybe you could just share a little bit about your background and how you got to be doing the work that you do today. Oh, okay. I spent the early part of my career actually in the corporate world, primarily as a corporate trainer. And at one point, my wife and I traded spots and I became a stay-at-home dad and when my kids got to be old enough to both be in school full-time, I thought, well, I could do a little work part-time if nothing else. And so I looked around for what I could do, keeping in mind that I really didn't want to have to deal with issues of childcare during the summer or Christmas breaks or spring breaks. And so I went to work for a school district, 
knowing that I would have the same days off my kids did and I would be able to be home right about the time that they got home. And the job that I was offered was working in a special needs children in an elementary school, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And I had no experience at it. Actually, I was fairly intimidated by the whole idea. I found out that I liked it and I think I was pretty good at it, but I enjoyed the environment. I enjoyed working with the children. I enjoyed meeting the families and it did that for 10 years. And while I was there, one of the parents of one of my students introduced me to a nonprofit called Kindering. And then I left the school district, went to work for our local United Way, did that for eight years. And while I was there at United Way, I began to do some volunteer work for Kindering. And Kindering is an early intervention center that provides education, therapies, and family support for currently a little over 5,800 children and families a year. And so when my predecessor at Kindering with the Washington State Fathers Network left, they offered me the position. And so that's sort of the short story of how I got here. The Fathers Network, I mentioned that Kindering offers family support services. And so one of those family support offerings is the Washington State Fathers Network. And the Fathers Network has been around since the late 70s. It started out at the University of Washington as actually a homework assignment for some students there. And it became part of Kindering in 1985. The idea behind the Fathers Network and the need for it, as I talk during the show here, I, I know I'm going to make some stereotypical general comments about men and women, but it makes it simple to say it this way. And I think when I talk about it this way, a lot of people say, yeah, that makes sense. I agree with that. And it holds true in many cases. I know there are exceptions, but uh, I just wanted to give that explanation of why I'm making those stereotypical statements. So in our society, typically, it's still a lot of times mom that will take kids to school take them to therapies, to the dentist, to the doctor, after school activities. And so a lot of times parents that have children in that situation, the father is sometimes just naturally a little bit removed from knowing exactly what's happening with the family. I can relate to this myself. As I mentioned, I became a stay-at-home dad. And up until the time that I became a stay-at-home dad, I felt that I was a very involved father. And then when I stayed home, I realized, oh, there's a whole different level of things here that I really wasn't aware of. So that was very eye-opening for me. And so for people who have children, a lot of times that's the dynamic. The dad tries to be really involved, but sometimes there's just a level that they don't get to. And then when you throw in the idea of having a child with special health care needs, another level of isolation that happens. Dads tend to not have the same social network that mom tends to have. And more importantly, they're not as likely to tap into that social network for help or assistance, whether that is uh, emotional assistance or logistical assistance or whatever kind of assistance they need. They're not likely to make that call. They are going through the same ups and downs that mom is going through, but they're just not getting any assistance or any help or anybody to talk to about it. So that makes it difficult for them. And they begin to feel like nobody really understands what they're going through because they haven't been able to realize that there are others out there that are going through the same thing. They also begin to withdraw a little bit from conversations with other dads. And it's not unusual that I'll talk to a dad and say, the other guys I know, they don't get it. They don't understand what I'm going through with my child. 
if they try to talk to these other dads, whether that's at work or in the neighborhood or with family or friends, those other dads are talking oftentimes about their kids in terms of major milestones, like saying a first word, taking a first step, being toilet trained, riding a bike, those kind of things. The dads that are part of the network or who have kids with special healthcare needs, when that dad says, hey, so tell me about your kid, and this dad says, oh, my kid has autism or Downs, he's four years old, he's not quite walking yet, it can be sort of a conversation stopper because the other dad doesn't quite really know how to react to that. And so the dads tend to withdraw from those conversations. So the Fathers Network was started with the idea that it would be helpful to help those men connect with other men who are going through the same kind of journey with their families. It's not always an easy thing to do because if you tell them, come to a support group, men don't like the word support group. It's not something they would want to do. It sounds very touchy-feely. A lot of the men come to us because their wives will tell them to, basically, or suggest it very strongly. One of the very first dads that I met in the Fathers Network, and I should say that I've been doing this for a little over three years now, but one of the very first dads that I met said he came to the Fathers Network because his wife locked him out of the house and said, you can't come back in until you go to the meeting. And the meeting's in half an hour, so I'll see you later. And he actually sat on his front step of his house, the porch of his house, and thought, well, what can I do out in the yard that would keep me busy for a while? And decided actually he would go to the meeting. He came to the meeting and became a very involved dad and stayed with us for a long time. When parents just show up for the first time, what's the format? I mean, if it's not called a support group, what do you do? So it is actually a support group. Just sometimes you just don't call it that. You just find other ways to let the guys know that there's a group of men getting together and we're going to have an opportunity to meet and get to know each other. The format can vary, but basically it's an opportunity for the men to get together. It could be in a conference room, like sometimes it could be held at a nonprofit could be held at someone's house. It could be held at a bar for all that matters. It's whatever works for that set of guys. Typically, they come in, they get together, they go around the room, introduce themselves, talk about their family, their children. After that, then a number of things could happen. One is that one of the dads could say, hey, I really came tonight because I wanted to get input on this particular situation that's happening with my family or with my child or with me or my relationship with my significant other. It could be a number of things, but they came to that meeting with the intent of getting some input or feedback or resources on an issue that they're dealing with in their family. That's typically what happens. And then at that point, the other men in the group will offer input and a conversation begins. And that conversation could go in other directions too, depending on what they're talking about. That's typically what happens. They all have a particular interest in something that they need more information about. Let's say it's something about school, like an IEP or how to get support for their children in a school environment. Or maybe they're all young dads and they have no idea what's going to happen when their kids all get old enough to be in school. And they want to know what that's like and how to deal with it, how to prepare for it. So they may have either a dad who has that experience talk about that subject matter, or they might bring an expert in and have that person make a presentation to the group. So it could be a number of different things. And each group will meet as frequently as they decide they will meet. So it's whatever works for that group. 
And what do these dads say after they've participated in this for a while? What kinds of benefits are they experiencing? I mentioned earlier that kindering was a early intervention center. So kindering primarily deals with children and families birth to age three. The Fathers Network doesn't have that restriction. So I have men in my groups whose children are approaching 40 years old. Oftentimes, they will stay a long time. It's often typical that dads will kind of figure things out after a while and feel they don't need that support, and so they will disappear from the group, but they oftentimes come back. In fact, there's a famous story within the network about a dad who had been a member of a group for a long time. One day, he showed back up again. He hadn't been there for a while, and he said, I came back tonight because my son has finally been toilet trained. I don't know anybody else who knows how important that is to me other than you guys. And so I came here tonight to share that with you. And I may not come back again, but if I need to, I know you'll be there. That's the kind of impact it can have on dads. But to answer your question about what they get out of the group, they get a safe place to talk with other men who understand what they're going through. Which is so powerful. <laughs> yeah, even if the diagnosis is not the same, they tend to be going through the same emotional ups and downs. They're dealing with services for their children, schools for their children, the medical community. They're dealing with the same kind of systems, and so they tend to be able to relate to what they're talking about, even if the diagnosis isn't the same. They get a safe place to meet and talk with other dads. They get information and resources that are helpful to them and their families. They get some camaraderie. They don't always come looking for camaraderie. A lot of times they get a new diagnosis for their child. They'll say, I don't know what autism really is, or I don't know what this diagnosis is that I got. I need some information. And one of the things about men is that they like to be seen or considered as problem solvers, and that they're in charge, they know what they're doing, they're gonna fix things. When they have a child with special healthcare needs and they get that diagnosis, they're looking for answers and they're looking for, what do I do to help my child, maybe fix my child so we can get past this? They eventually figure out that this isn't something they can fix, but being able to go to a group where there are other men that they can talk to, open up to, ask for information and resources, have some vulnerability while still maintaining that manliness of being in charge and trying to fix things. It can be really powerful for a man to be able to do that. So they're not always looking for camaraderie, but once they get there and they begin to understand the impact that this group of guys can have on them, they stay around. And eventually they become friends and they meet people in the group and they hang out separately. And then a lot of times what happens is when a group of guys get together, they may all get to the point at some time where they say, you know, we've been meeting for three or four years. We've kind of got things figured out now. I don't think we need to meet formally anymore, but why don't we get together periodically and have a beer or watch a game together or do something with our kids, our families. And so they may stop meeting but they've made that connection and they found another group that they can talk with. And so they don't necessarily have that need anymore. And that's probably the best kind of stress management 
is just to know that they have that support, even if it's just in the background. Yeah, absolutely. I think just knowing that you have someone that you can talk to who understands is invaluable. Do dads do things that help them manage stress? Do you guys talk about self-care among fathers? Just coming to the meetings oftentimes can be considered self-care. The opportunity to just be able to to talk to somebody else about what you're going through, just being able to verbalize something to someone that you're going through and have them understand it, it's like having a weight lifted from your chest or your shoulders. And so that's something that the dads really do see as a benefit to the group. Being able to socialize is another thing. We have a lot of families that I'll talk to and they say, you know, my wife and I haven't gone out on a date for years or you know the family doesn't do things together anymore sometimes mom will take some of the kids out to do something dad will take the other kids out to do something or stay home with the kids while the other kids are out and so the opportunity to meet other families can be very impactful to be able to say hey you know let's go out and do something in the community together let's get together at somebody's house it's a release valve and it really does help to be able to go out and feel like you're part of the community again. This is a good segue into talking about this workshop that you do. I was so intrigued to hear about it. And just when you were saying that it's just a weight off your chest to be able to talk about it. And I was intrigued when you told me that you have a telling your story with a purpose workshop that you do with fathers. And I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about that program. And maybe you could explain why is it important for fathers to learn how to tell their story? It is a workshop called Telling Your Story with a Purpose, and it actually was developed out here in the Seattle area by some folks at Seattle Children's Hospital. I've now taken it, and I'm trying to do it as much as I can around the state for parents with a focus on men. And the reason that I focus on men is that in my position managing the Fathers Network, I will oftentimes get requests. They could be requests from a school board or a university to have parents come out and talk to, let's say, students. Like, for example, the University of Washington will sometimes call and say, hey, we need some parents to come out and talk to our nursing students or doctor students or educators, social workers, any number of students, so they can understand what it's like to raise a child with special health care needs, because these are going to be professionals that will be out there in the community trying to provide services to these families, and we'd love for them to have that perspective. When I get those requests, and this is true for not just myself, but for a lot of other people that I work with in surrounding organizations that work with families, when those requests go out, it's easily over 90% of the time, it's mom who shows up. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it's great that moms are out there doing that because that parent perspective needs to be provided to those incoming professionals. But what's unfortunate is that if 90% of the time it's women, it means many, many times the male perspective is not being heard. And even if mom and dad are telling the same story, it's said differently by a man. And right or wrong, men are heard differently in our society. I'm trying to find men who want to tell their story, who are ready to tell their story, and train them on how to do so effectively. It's great because I can see that it's important to hear the father's perspective out there. And also, you know, if there is an opportunity to influence 
policies and practices because you're an effective advocate because you learned how to tell a story and and share that like lived experience more power to you and we need to hear from everyone who has that lived experience in all angles the workshop is actually designed to have someone be able to find an issue that they feel very strongly about that they're passionate about something that's affecting not just their family but that affects a lot of other families try to get that change. It could be, like you said, a policy. It could be a law. It could be funding for a particular program. It could be a number of things. But the purpose of the workshop is to train you to find that issue and then be able to use your family's story as a way to communicate the need to someone who's in a position of power to make a decision that would help make a change that you're seeking. Yeah, it's kind of like an elevator pitch. It is. It's your elevator pitch, and it's not an easy thing to do. A lot of these families, they have been through so much and seeing or making changes that are going to benefit their family and other families is something that they're passionate about, oftentimes emotional about. And being able to get them to focus in on what that thing is you want to have changed and why it needs to be changed and how it's affecting your family and other families and say all of that within two to three minutes, which is what we're shooting for, can be very difficult. Oh, yeah. It's got to be really hard for people to sometimes zoom out from the reality that they're sort of immersed in and be able to kind of see it from the perspective of someone else who maybe doesn't feel as emotional about it. It's true. But sometimes when you're talking with somebody who is in a position to make a decision, all you have sometimes is two to three minutes. It may be that you know if you go to the legislature, they oftentimes time you. And if you exceed your time, then you're, you're done. Personally, I've gone to the legislator and planned to talk with representatives. And unexpectedly, I was thinking I was going to talk with them in their office, sitting in a chair across a table or a desk, but my opportunity came when they were walking from one meeting to another, and I had very little time. And so it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I was prepared for, but I had to do the best I could within 90 seconds to two minutes. And so you just have to prepare for that. If you start getting off on a tangent, not focusing in on what it is that you need to talk about, you're going to lose your audience and you'll lose your opportunity. So can you explain the process you go through with a father, say, to develop their story? The basic format that we want them to use when they make their presentation is to simply start with an introduction of who they are. If possible, thank the person they're talking with for something that they've already done that has been helpful to families with special health care needs or something they've done in general that you appreciate. And then make your request. I'm here today to ask you to do X. And just make that statement at the beginning. One of the things we talk about is doing some research in advance to find out who it is you're talking to, what is their relationship or knowledge or information about families who have children with special needs. And if there's some connection there that you can use, then try to work that into the process also. And then tell your story. And the reason that we ask them to tell their story about their family is that it's much more effective to draw somebody in with your story. Because if you start rattling off data or an argument, 
then the other person is likely to start trying to figure out whether they agree with the data or with your argument. And they're not paying as much attention. And it creates a little bit of an adverse relationship. So we're hoping that you'll tell a story. And when that person is, say, sitting at home that night at dinner with his or her family, they may say, you know, I met this parent today and they told me something that I just can't get out of my mind. And that would be the power of being able to tell your story. So we want them to tell their story, explain why the request is important, not just to your family, but to a lot of other families and how it would impact those families in the community. Thank them again, and then repeat your request. That's the basic format we have them go through. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them kind of a format. <laughs> but this is really building advocacy skills. And I'm interested to hear, can you tell us a story about someone who learned how to tell their story and how it helped them? I can't really at the moment because we've been doing this for almost a year now. And it's kind of new. And all the families, all the people that we've talked to, parents, both moms and dads, they haven't necessarily gone out and used it yet. We do have some workshops coming up in Pierce County, which is the county just below King County where Seattle is located. And the purpose of that is we're going to present it to them before these parents go to what's called legislative days. And at those legislative days, it's an opportunity to have the parents tell their story to legislators on a particular topic. And so that will be probably one of the first times we'll actually have families who are being trained with a specific date and goal in mind to be able to tell their story. It's such a great idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. What's difficult about this is that it's a hard thing to do. When we do the workshop, we do tell them up front, when you walk out of here, you're not going to be an expert at this. You might not even be comfortable or good at this, but you will have learned a format that if you practice, you'll get better at it and you'll be effective at being able to tell your story. And we give people in the workshop lots of time to practice because the more times you say it, the easier it becomes. In the workshop, we show a video of a dad telling his story. And he tells a very powerful story, but it takes him almost five minutes to tell his story, which is a little bit too long, which is okay because we use that as information to talk about when we debrief his video about how he could have done it better or shorter. When we show that video to the group in the class, we let them know that this was after he had done it many, many, many times over and over and over again. And to get to this point where you can still say, hey, that could have been better. And so it's just something that needs to be practiced and done over and over again. I was thinking for listeners that it's not just going out there and trying to change policy. I think every time, for example, that you go into a, maybe a special education meeting or maybe you're shopping for a new therapist of some sort, you have to tell your story over and over. And sometimes they ask you those basic questions like, was it a typical, normal delivery? And on and on you answer those questions. You could answer some of them in your sleep. But the storytelling, it is necessary because you're trying to explain and influence that person's point of view somehow so they get what you see. It's true. And for a lot of the families, they 
tell their story over and over and over again. Like you said, whether it's going to a doctor or going to school, receiving services of some kind, they wind up having to tell their story repeatedly. The challenge that we have in the workshop is getting them to be able to tell their story, a particular part of their story that will benefit what they're trying to accomplish in terms of a change and just tell that piece because there's so much that they want to say. There's so much that has happened with them and their families. If they go off on a little bit of a tangent, they just lose the focus and then they lose their opportunity. There's lots of things that happen in the workshop in terms of dealing with emotions. Yeah, that's just why I want to hear a story, just because it'll bring it to life. Just if you could think of an example. I mentioned the video that we use in the workshop, and this is a dad, actually a custodial grandfather, and he talks about being in the waiting room after his granddaughter was being examined by a doctor, and the doctor coming out and basically saying, this is the diagnosis for your granddaughter, and she's never going to be able to do this thing, this thing, and this thing, and then he walked away. And so he said, I sat there with tears in my eyes, trying to compose myself so that I could get on to the next appointment that I had with my daughter, with his granddaughter. It can be very emotional to deal with those things, but if you let your emotions override what you want to say, what the point is that you want to make, then again, you lose your opportunity. So being able to either practice that enough with someone so that you can get past that point of emotion is important, or maybe having to pick a different story might be important. And it's not that we're trying to eliminate the emotion because the emotion can be very powerful in terms of telling your story and winning over who it is you're talking to, but you just can't let that emotion get in the way of helping you make your point. I like that concept that, of course, you're not trying to wash the emotion away. It's there, and but you want to direct it so that it has the most impact and channel it so that you are in control of it and not just crumbling. And there's things that they have to think about, too, in terms of how much they really want to talk about their family, because there are some things that are private. And you have to consider, would my family member, would my child want me talking about certain things to someone else in public and on record? Yeah. And as they get older, sometimes that even becomes more obvious to parents, I think. As I talk to parents of children who are older teenagers and young adults, you start saying, whose story is it? There's a dad that I know that uh, when his son was born, he and his wife started this blog and they would just blog about all the things they were going through and about their son almost on a daily basis. And it was kind of cathartic for them. It was a way for them to, to express what they were going through and the feelings they were having. But at one point, their son got old enough and he said, Dad, I really don't want you saying that anymore. In that particular case, the child was able to communicate that. Sometimes that's not always the case. And you just have to think about it yourself. Is this something that I should be talking about? Yeah. And I think everybody has their own idea about what I sort of call it selective disclosure. But it's also, as our kids get older, we need to communicate with them and if possible, get them to sort of agree upon what message is okay with them. It's just something we talk through in the workshop to make sure that it's something that they have considered before they go out and they do this public presentation or advocacy and just make sure everybody in the family is comfortable with what they're going to do. 
It's got to be really therapeutic, though, in the group to go through this exercise. It is. The people in the workshop, I'm not sure that they bond necessarily, but they do get to understand what that other person is trying to communicate, and they wind up helping each other a lot. They help each other through it by asking a lot of questions. Well, what if you did this? Or have you thought about saying it this way? Or have you talked to somebody else to get this additional piece of information, which would help make your story more impactful? And it's nice to see it in the class where they help each other. Gosh, you're doing such great work out there in the world. How many Fathers Networks are in Washington? The Fathers Network by itself, we have what we call chapters. And there are probably, I'm going to guess, maybe 15 chapters, I think. I should mention that one of the other things that we do besides the meetings is we have social activities. We do have activities to try to connect the men in a more natural way so that it might be a poker party, it might be a Super Bowl party, it might be camping. Some of these things are just for men. Some of them are family-oriented. But getting families or men together in a place where they just start talking naturally, and instead of feeling like it's a lead conversation, they just, they're standing there and talking to somebody, and oftentimes they'll find that they are neighbors. It's not unusual for me to get a group of guys together and someone will start talking and say, hey, you know, we just, we live in the same town, we're practically neighbors. And so then that becomes a potential friendship and resource for those dads. That's great. So before we wrap up, can you tell us a couple of things? First of all, how can people in Washington find your network? And also, are there any father's networks in other states or regions if people who are listening aren't in Washington? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. You can go to our website, which is fathersnetwork.org. On the website, there's a contact us page and it'll give my contact information. You can reach me that way. But nationally, I know there are other groups. I find them sort of sporadically and by chance at this moment. I really would like to find an organized way to do that. I just had a call from a dad last week from New York and he was looking to start up a dad's group out there. And so we've been talking and exchanging information and hopefully something will happen there and I'll be able to refer people. Yeah, good. We'll get some momentum going out there for the father's perspective to be heard in the world. (laughs) That would be great. I'd love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lewis. I really appreciate it. That was really interesting to hear about what the dad's experience is like. And I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E.org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well being 
starts with parent well-being. <laughs>